You're tuned in, tuned up, and ready to go. Welcome to Ria's Ham Shack, a weekly conversation about amateur radio, shortwave listening, and radio tech, hosted by Ria Jiram and 2RJ, and heard weekly on WRMI Legends Shortwave. And now, here's your host, Ria. Is it really Thursday again? Well, welcome, my friends, to Ria's Ham Shack, right here on WRMI Legends your shortwave destination for all great things. And this week we're gonna have a new thing right here on Ria's Ham Shack. This show is heard every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central on WRMI Legends Shortwave 5050 on your shortwave dial. I am Ria, call sign N to RJ. And here we talk about amateur radio, shortwave listening and radio tech and other things. So this week I'm going to talk a little bit about single sideband operation. I'm going to give you some tips and tricks and uh, sprinkle on you some learning about single sideband and particularly single sideband, not necessarily just phone operation, but single sideband operation. You know, single sideband is probably one of the most popular modes in amateur radio and I operate a fair bit of it. I also operate CW and FT8, so you know, I have a good time on single sideband talking to my friends. I'm going to tell you how I use it for various purposes, including rag chewing, that is talking, also DXing, contacting distance stations, and contesting. So sit back, relax, pour a cup of your favorite brew, whether it be coffee, tea, or maybe, you know, something else, and listen to your shortwave source of all knowledge. Yes. I'd like to thank those who inspired us to do this learning segment. You know, those who say that how only they need to be the purveyors of learning. Well, you know what? Uh, we're we're doing it here, right here for you on WRMI Legends. But first, we got to pay the bills and come right back. I hope you join me on my YouTube channel and uh, I will tell you exactly how to do it on the break. Coming right back. So I am Ria, call sign N2RJ, and you might know me from such YouTube channels as Ria's Ham Shack on YouTube. You can go to youtube.com forward slash at N2RJ, and you can catch all the goodness, all the great videos, and some exclusives that you don't find on other YouTube channels. YouTube.com forward slash at N2RJ, Ria's Ham Shack on YouTube. And sometimes I do the live with Ria live streams on Sundays, and we do other great things. You can catch me on my travels, places I go, and things I see and do. Ria's Ham Shack on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash at N2RJ. YouTube.com forward slash at N2RJ. So one of the greatest things about amateur radio, you know, we look back at the early days of radio and the early days of communication, to be honest. Well, we're not talking about smoke signals. We're talking about wireless communication, the wonderful world of wireless. And back in the old days, it was, it started off with the spark gap and then it went to the continuous wave. And then you had the, somebody figured out, well, you know, I could take Alexander Graham Bell's microphone and transmit voice. Hmm. There were people who kind of um, figured that out. I think um, Reginald Fessenden was one of the people who did that first. I don't think he was the first. I'll have to look up who was the first. Who was the first? Um, let's see what ChatGPT says. 
So let's see. This isn't I like A L E X A, and I'm not gonna say her name because you know what happens. Um, I'm gonna go into Chat GPT and I say, "Who was?" Let's see. You now I type up here, "Who was the first to send voice over radio?" And da da da. Chat GPT come back and says, "The first successful demonstration of voice transmission over radio waves is attributed to Reginald Fessenden, a Canadian inventor and engineer." On December 23, 1900, Fessenden conducted an experiment in which he transmitted his voice using a high-frequency alternator to modulate a continuous wave radio signal. This historic transmission took place at Brankrock, Massachusetts, and it marked a significant milestone in the development of wireless communication. Fessenden's work laid the foundation for the development of voice communication via radio, which eventually led to the establishment of radio broadcasting and the widespread use of radio for both communication and entertainment purposes. Wow. Okay. So I, I was correct. Well, you know, um, <laughs> I've had a, a, a really, um, I've had a liking for Fessenden's, um, how should I put transmission and the history of it? I did a video on it, but more importantly, also, I actually did some live streams with the Fessenden transmissions back in the, uh, few years ago. I was actually there's a there's a ham dub Brian W A one Z M S. He actually re- created a recreation of Fessenden's um you know transmission. Uh but I don't think he used an alternator, of course. I think he might have used like some old tube type equipment with a a master oscillator power amplifier setup uh kind of thing. And then he um transmitted on long waves with an experimental license. So I I live streamed that, and actually the Washington Post ended up picking it up, and they wrote a nice article, which I still have there. It's um, pretty good. So it was, it was pretty nice. Um, anyway, the point of that is that voice communication has become really essential and um, in amateur radio. So in the, in the other world outside of amateur radio, I mean, broadcast, a lot of broadcasts are still FM, uh, you could ask Ted Randall about FM. He knows a lot about FM, okay? <laughs> I'm not the FM person. He is like an FM guru. And him and Holly. So they're, um, uh, FM is used a lot of broadcasts. AM is used in broadcasts. Uh, they're trying to shut AM down. Elon Musk and those guys want to get rid of AM. But um, because he already got rid of it from Tesla cars. My congressman, Josh Gottheimer, actually wants to keep AM around. But... You, you have an idea that, uh, you know, despite all this new digital modulation and all that stuff, we still have good old-fashioned analog audio. And I want to talk this week about single sideband. So we're going to talk about it in the learning segment. But I just want to give you a nice overview, historical overview of single sideband. And... Um, Single sideband modulation really was not invented by a single individual. It was developed as a result of advancements in research. I'm, I'm quoting ChatGPT here of radio communications. So there are a lot of people, let's see, ChatGPT said John Renshaw Carlson, worked in the 1920s. Harold Stephen Black, American electrical engineer, developed the concept of negative feedback. And numerous other researchers and engineers made contributions to SSB. So, yeah, and then there was a big push to get AM off the bands because AM took up a lot of room and, you know, the ARL wanted to to make the bands more efficient and such like that. That's when 
data barrel did used to do a lot of useful things. So they kind of, um, they used to do that, but SSB was a thing. And you know, there was a, there, there's a meme going around the internet with a guy with a big bumper sticker that says, help stamp out single sideband. <laughs> oh dear. But so this week we're going to talk about SSB and I'm, I'm really excited to do these learning segments because if you look in our Facebook group, I also ask a question if you can send any questions. So if you have any questions about our tech topics, about our operating topics, about our learning segments, you can go in the Facebook group, WRMI Legends Fan Club, and then you can ask the question and then I will read your answers on, I will read the questions and answers on the air. So how cool is that? So this is how we're going to do it. Now, learning is essential. I mean, learning is pretty much amateur radio. Amateur radio is a hobby for learning. And, it, you know, you have, I mean, yeah, you have some things that you can do with it. Like, I guess you could do emergency communications if needed. You can do DXing. You can do contesting. You can do rag chewing. You can talk with your friends. But for the most part, a lot of people like amateur radio because they can learn something, because they can do something you know, that they never did before. I learned a lot of things in amateur radio. I learned I learned a lot about electronics, about radio communication. I even learned about the world. I learned about geography. You see, it doesn't always have to be technical, right? Even though technology is the spice of life sometimes, amateur radio does not always have to be about tech learning. You can learn a lot of things. You can even learn about different parts of the USA. And I never learned about how people talked, because I was new to this country back in like 2000, 2001. And I quickly learned about all the different parts of the United States, you know, when I was listening and talking to people on amateur radio. So we are going to learn, okay? And we're going to make it worthwhile. As usual, send your questions to Ria at N2RJ. That's R-I-A at N2RJ.com. We'll come back with the learning segment and uh, we'll dive right into it right here on Ria's Ham Shack. So if you are in India or you know people in India, why don't you ask them to check out the Oscar India Ham Radio Conference, which is the first conference in many years to be held in Eastern India. And this is going to be held in Santini Kitan in Eastern India in West Bengal. Um, you can check them out at beaham.in. Beaham. That's B-E-A-H-A-M dot I-N. Uh, Oscar India, they also check out their YouTube channel at Oscar India and check them out. They have a lot of cool educational videos and you get a world perspective you might not have seen before. All right, let's get back to the show. Okay, so it's time to talk about single sideband and here is our learning segment. So first of all, let me explain what single sideband is. Of course, you know, as an amateur radio operator, you learn a little bit of things in the license preparation when you prepare to get a license, but you never really get to use it until you actually get the license. So back in the old days, and probably still today for a lot of people, you generated AM amplitude modulation with, uh, it had a carrier wave, which is a single static wave uh, carrier signal in the middle of the transmission. And then you had amplitude modulation. So what you would do is would you would apply the audio information via either a modulation transformer or some other means. The old means was you basically had a modulation transformer that you would supply the audio to it and then it would influence that carrier wave to produce the sidebands, right? So if you learn how 
um, radio works is that radio deals with mixing and mixing is when you have two signals of different frequencies and you combine them and you get the sum of the different frequencies and if you s combine audio frequency with a carrier wave of a certain frequency you're gonna get the sum of that audio spectrum and the difference so essentially you're gonna have two sidebands you're gonna have an upper sideband which is the sum of all the audio frequency signals because remember audio frequency signals for at least for humans go from about 20 to 20,000 Hertz and real and realistically you would get from uh, uh, 50 to 300 to 3 kilohertz so 50 Hertz to about f uh, 3,000 Hertz of human intelligible speech it might be might be a hundred probably a hundred to three thousand so anyway it tops off around three thousand Hertz so you're gonna get plus and minus three kilohertz on the sidebands but you're thinking to yourself wait a minute that can be kind of wasteful right you're using double the spectrum for the same information so you have plus and you have minus why why can't you just send one that was exactly the thinking behind single sideband single sideband essentially would remove one of the sidebands so the the signal would be generated as usual internally within the transmitter and then you would have a circuit that would remove one of the sidebands okay and um, so the original way this was developed was that they had a filter so they had something called a bandpass filter which would only would only leave the upper sideband or the lower sideband but that was less common and um, the rest would be filtered out so this is like brute force essentially so you would have only that sideband and only that sideband will go out the transmitter you would have the the basically half of the signal but enough still to produce intelligence and this bandpass filter also removed the carrier wave because the carrier wave is essentially superfluous in single sideband operation so now this produces several benefits for one on the in terms of um, being friendly with your other users of radio spectrum you only have that sideband so you're not um, you're not interfering with people as much one right and there's more room for more signals but the other thing is that it's more efficient with your amplifier so your your final amplifier stage now had um, only this sideband to amplify at a much narrower bandwidth and it could concentrate its power there so essentially you would probably get more power out of a single sideband than AM okay so you would get um, you would not have to amplify this carrier wave and you not have to amplify the other sideband so you only have find this one sideband and you can get essentially more power probably even use less electricity too because you're not transmitting this carrier wave full-time now that wasn't the only method they also had the Hartley modulator so the Hartley modulator was named after RVL Hartley and it uses something called phasing to suppress the unwanted sideband so two versions of the original signal were generated they were 90 degrees out of phase so essentially they cancel each other out and then um, the each one of those signals would modulate the carrier wave so they would be you know they would mix with the carrier wave to produce the signal and then uh, when those signals were added or subtracted you could get a lower upper sideband right so this was um, this was pretty uh, unique 
And there was a third one called the Weavy Weaver Modulator, which uses low-pass filters, and um, but it's mostly for digital. So that um, that's in a nutshell how it came to be. You know, the military, of course, was uh, one of the the big developers of this, and um, they actually wanted to to make more efficient use of their spectrum and such. So on the receiving end, uh, of course, since you don't have a carrier. You're not going to to ha the the speech is going to sound unintelligible when it's detected through an AM detector because you don't have the carrier wave. So what you had to do is you had to have something called a beat frequency oscillator, and the beat frequency oscillator essentially recreates the carrier wave on the receiver end internally. But you know that's better than transmitting it over the air and receiving it, right? You you recreate it locally, and then you mix that BFO along with the received detected signal that's um, detected by the detector into something called a product detector. Now the product detector would mix the two of them together and recreate the whole signal. There have been some other uh, implementations of SSB such as amplitude compounded single sideband modulation. So it uses a single sideband with a pilot tone and there's an expander in the receiver to restore the amplitude, that is the, the signal intensity, which was compressed by the transmitter. So essentially, you would get more range over the SSB modulation, and of course, um, you'd still be able to use standard SSB radios. There is another one called Control Envelope, a single sideband. So uh, generally, SSB overshoots above the standard um, uh, uh, envelope like the standard, you know, the envelope uh, of the signal for a sine wave, even when you limit the peaks, by the way. And essentially, they would control that envelope, and then you'd have about 3.8 dB of peak reduction for speech transmission. So you would actually have better um, average power increase, and um, that would help with. Uh, getting the signals out further. So so that is about SSB. Now, in terms of practical tips, so I have some practical tips over the years that I have learned about SSB and um, there are some there are some things you should know. But first let's go to our reader questions. So one of the things you realize, and this is directly related to SSB modulation, is how to make your voice the most intelligible, pace of speech and inflection. So that's a good question. And this has more to do with tuning across the band and how somebody's going to encounter your voice. I would say when making calls on SSB, like a CQ call, you know, you want to make a CQ call for somebody to hear you and then respond to you. You want to do it a little slowly, but not too slow. And you also want to repeat it a few times. Like I would say, for example, I would say CQ three times very slowly. And then I would say my call sign. So I would say something like CQ, CQ, CQ. This is N2RJ. And then you have to use the phonetics because a lot of the noise and, and the other stuff is going to cover your signal. So you want to use the phonetics. And I would use November 2, Romeo, Juliet. It is recommended that you use the standard phonetics, but there are some people who, who would get, uh, you know, their knickers in a knot if you decided to not use the standard phonetics. 
sometimes you kind of have to not use the standard phonetics because you can increase intelligibility by using alternate words. For example, Sierra sometimes is replaced with sugar and you have um, Mike might be a little too short, so some people replace it with Mexico. Hotel, you replace it with Honolulu, which is a little longer. This is the other thing about single sideband, is that because you don't have a carrier wave, you don't have this big strong single anchoring your voice. So somebody watching it on a SDR receiver or even tune across the band might not hear signal where they would be able to pick you up what they with an am signal there's that carrier there and they could zero beat the carrier right they can tune into the carrier but with the ssb signals there's none of that so you want to have your voice modulating as much as possible one way to do that of course is to talk loudly and slowly and extend your words a little bit you know and you watch that meter on your radio um, kind of swing and stay up at the high end. But another thing you can do, and you use the speech processor and you crank up your compression just a little bit. You don't want to crank it up too much because if you put too much audio, what's going to happen is your signal is going to splatter. So you put it up a little bit higher and, you know, you have it on a lot of these radios, you have a control called ALC on the meter that you look at. You make sure that it's within, there is like a little range in the middle there you can see. You make sure that the needle, if you switch your radio to ALC on the meter, you can make sure that um, the, the needle is staying within that ALC range. This way you're not overdriving your transmitter, which could result in splatter and things like that. So. Uh, you use your speech processor, use it responsibly. There is also the principle of garbage in, garbage out. So sometimes, you know, if you have a poor microphone, well, you get what you pay for. If you have a nice microphone and you use it responsibly and properly, you will get very far, my friend. And one of the things you need to consider is that are you going to uh, you know have a, a big boomy audio which might get you a lot on the low end but probably wouldn't get you through for dx or are you going to have a nice you know balanced audio that is punchy yet um you're able to you know to break through the pile up that way so i tend to lean a little more on the punchy side the big boomy low howard stern voice you know and he he yeah he he popularized that probably there might have been other radio men that popularized that kind of thing, but there are people who like bass that that ain't gonna fly in amateur radio because a lot of amateur radio is communications quality audio and a lot of the low frequencies are filtered out anyway. I would say concentrate on the mid range. You have an equalizer. Your radio might have an equalizer. Try to adjust it for the mid range. And then, you know, use the speech processor to get it tuned up nice. There are a number of different videos you can watch on YouTube that show you how to properly tune up your, your various radios. There is one for the ICOM 7300, which I know is one of the world's best radios, okay? And um, I hope you're listening, ICOM. I love your radios, okay? <laughs> they didn't pay me to say this, but I'll tell you that um, 
they that you know that there's a lot of videos that tell you how to tune up the audio nice so yeah you you take advantage of that you make sure that you have your audio tuned up well uh, the stock hand mic is good for demonstration purposes but you really want to get a good microphone now whether you get a headset microphone or not is up to you um, you can get a headset. I have a number of headsets. I have one from Radio Sport Headsets. I also have a boom mic. I use, I sometimes, and I'm recording it on this one right now. I'm using the Audio-Technica AT2020 microphone that I use to do uh, radio and, you know, podcasts and stuff like that too. I use it for radio too. But, um, those are various things. And, you know, you keep your audio nice and clean. Now, um, the choice of microphone actually a dynamic microphone is good for noisy environments where you have like, you know, things going on in your shack, you have a lot of noise because it's not that sensitive, okay? You have to kind of get close and put a decent amount of audio into that from your voice. A condenser microphone, on the other hand, is kind of like it picks up everything in the room. So unless you have a treated room, meaning that you have like sound paneling and such like that, I would kind of make sure that if you use the condenser microphone that you lower the gain on the microphone and try to um, to keep it, you know, uh, where you're not picking up every last bit of noise in the room. Okay, so let's go to another um, question here. How to break an SSB DX pileup. So if you're doing DXing, you know, the concept of DXing is you're breaking the pileups, right? So the pileup is where you have a number of stations calling for the DX. That's a good question. You can use several things to your advantage. Um, first of all, uh, most pileups operate in what you call split mode. And split mode is where they listen on one frequency and they, they transmit on one frequency and then they listen on one frequency that might be 5 to 10 kilohertz up. And most of them will say 5 to 10 up. So you're listening 5, you're transmitting 5 to 10 kilohertz higher than them. And the, the, the thing to do with that, there are several ways you can actually work that. So number one is to find a nice clear spot and call right there. If you're in the clear, chances are that they're going to hear you. Of course, um, you find that you're in the clear and they're not responding. Maybe they're not even listening there at all. One other way to get through the, the SSB pileup is that if you hear a station responding, like let's say I call, let's say a DX station, I don't know, let's say Kim Jong-un from North Korea, and you know he's going to jam us now when I say this. Let's say Kim Jong-un from North Korea comes on the air and says, hello, this is P5, P5KJU, um, okay, P5KJU, Kim Jong-un, I'm the supreme leader of North Korea. <laughs> And I am here to make DXCC in one hour. Yeah, you'd probably write something like that. Uh, I see them warming up the jammers now. But, um, so, yeah. Um, so they say P5KJU, listening 5 to 10 up. And he answers a lot of stations at 5 kilohertz. And then what you could do is you could probably go like uh, a little higher than 5 kilohertz. So you go like 5.2 kilohertz. And this way, you're not in a jumble with everybody else. You're just a little bit outside, so maybe they hear you a little clearer. You know, if you just transmit in zero beat on the same frequency as everybody else, what's going to happen is that you're going to get jumbled up with everybody else. But if you're a little bit higher, maybe if you go like one kilohertz higher, you'll find that the DX station might find you interesting and clear enough to receive. Being on the other end of a pileup, 
is a pretty interesting experience. You find that generally, a lot of times the operator is concerned with what you call the rate. And the rate is where they want to contact as many stations as possible. If they hear a station within their target area that's easier to work, you'll find that generally the operator will want to work them. So you now, as a DXer, probably need to, to find some way to be that other station that's easy to work. One way, of course, is to use a big amplifier and a big antenna and just be the loudest one out there. The other one is to use little tricks like what I mentioned where you tune yourself a little higher or a little lower you know, than where the whole pileup is listening. So you don't zero beat exactly on the frequency. This is true for single sideband and it's also pretty true for CW because CW is so narrow. Okay, so that's my that's one of my best tips. Um, somebody jokingly said, you know, a YL voice, a, a lady's voice. Well, yeah, okay, that works too. Um, but, you know, realize that you know, people are not going to be able to do that. I mean, you know, you get what God gives you, okay? So, what you're going to do is, you can you can also make sure that your compression settings are good so that, you know, you're transmitting a lot of power in that envelope and it's going to be detected a lot better on the receiving end that um, you make yourself a little more noticeable. Uh, you call signs that repeat letters, you know, you could send your call sign once, but then you could repeat parts of it. Like, I might say sometimes, November 2, Romeo, Juliet. And you know, just for good measure, I might say, November 2, Romeo, Juliet. This is Romeo, Juliet, Romeo, Juliet. I say that a few times. Some DXers might frown on that tactic, but it works for me, okay? If you have to choose, if you if you're choosing a new call sign, by all means try to get a call sign with repeated letters. So, for example, um, Dave Sumner from the AWRL, he had Kilo One Zulu Zulu, and that was no accident, because in contests in particular, a repeated letter is very advantageous because you're tuning across the band, and you hear that repeated letter, it's very easy to copy that. You might copy a little piece of that. Yeah, there is. Um, there are quite a, a, a number of contesters who use that tactic. You know, like Charlie, Charlie, Delta, Delta. You know, Bravo, Bravo. <laughs> yeah, it is a common contesters tactic. But if you're like me and you choose your initials, Romeo Juliet. Well, no, no big deal. November two, Romeo Juliet. Yes, the Romeo Juliet, Romeo Juliet. Whatever you do, I don't like this practice. Just don't say just the last two letters of your call sign because you're supposed to identify with your entire call sign and technically not identifying with your entire call sign is breaking FCC rules. Um, although the FCC does require you to only identify every 10 minutes and also at the end of your transmission, other countries' rules might be different, right? I'm talking about my experience in the United States. Let's talk about contesting. So the nice thing about contesting is a lot of contest software allows you to record your voice in their, in their contesting program and play it back again and again. And again, if you can, you know, record it with the speech processor or if you have software like Audacity, you can actually take Audacity and run the speech processor so it punches through a little bit more. Just be careful that you're not um, exceeding the ALC threshold you know, that, that it remains nice within that ALC range on your radio so that you're not, um, you're not uh, causing a lot of splatter and stuff. 
the contest organizers are getting serious about that stuff, okay? They're dinging people who have been splattering all over the bands. It's not good, guys. It's it's really not good. But, you know, you can do it. You can use, you can be, you know, a good operator while still obeying the rules. One other tip I learned, and it's not necessarily about single sideband, it's about weak signal receiving. I actually learned this from an old book from Radio Shack. It might have been Radio Shack. I think it might have been by Forrest Mims or one of them. Um, so essentially, if you're listening to weak AM signals, even on the broadcast band AM, you might find that very weak signals that are barely on the threshold of being copyable are probably better received if you switch your receiver to single sideband mode. Because yes, you can listen to an AM signal in single sideband mode. And because you're receiving less, you know, on a narrower bandwidth, the receiver might receive it better, might be a little more sensitive and definitely def more selective so that you're able to pick up that weak signal. I've used this with success when I did a lot of broadcast band and shortwave DXing. I had um, used a single sideband mode in my ICOM radio and um, I was able to listen to weak signals that way. So that is a tip, even if they are in AM mode. Um, so you got that one for free, guys, okay? So <laughs> I hope you appreciate it. Uh, other things to, to think about, um, single sideband operation is great because it uses less battery if you're using portable operations. So when I went to Japan, I used a BioEno battery and a little um, battery charger, and I transmitted on single sideband, and also FT8, and it worked out real well. So I was able to, to use less battery power. It was pretty good. I don't know. I, I'm thinking about things I'll do on my next trip to Japan, which might be next year. I think I'm going to Tokyo Ham Fair regardless of, you know, wherever, um, whoever else goes. I had such a great time. You know, I have such a great time traveling to various places. Don't get me started on, on Delta Airlines and the changes they made. So I might be looking for a new airline. I'll probably go to Lufthansa or something or or um, United Airlines. Okay, so single sideband is a pretty nice mode to use. Like I said, in a nutshell, the advantages are it you get further distance with the same power. You use less power. It's more efficient in terms of spectrum. It's also more efficient in terms of the power it uses. Um, your amplifier actually uh, is a little happier in SSB than it is at AM because it's not transferring that big honking carrier wave. And it is pretty much a de facto mode. So one one thing, one more thing. You might have wondered how, um, why you have different sidebands, VHF and UH, um, not VHF, sorry, upper and lower sidebands. So essentially, in the old days, uh, they used to mix signals to produce the, the sidebands. And, well, apparently something, it's it's rooted in something that's lost in history that some radios, they could have just used a single oscillator and a filter, set of filters, and received lower sideband below like 9 megahertz and upper sideband above 9 megahertz. So that's essentially what it is. Okay, so that's it. I hope you had a um, a good foray into the world of single sideband. If you have any questions, comments, tips, criticisms, anything, 
send them to Rhea at n2rj.com. That is Romeo India Alpha at n2rj.com. And I will answer them, all right? Tell me what you want to talk about next week as well. Let's take a break and come back with the news right here on Ria's Ham Shack. So, hey, this is Ria N2RJ. We've been making some changes to the YouTube channel. And one of them is that we're no longer going to have the show, this show, Ria's Ham Shack on the YouTube channel. Yeah, you know, it was a difficult decision, but I think the show is better enjoyed on the radio. So if you want to listen to the show, you can listen to it on 5050 at 9 p.m. Eastern or 0100 UTC and the uh, 5050 WRMI Legends or you can listen on WRMILegends.com or you can wait for the podcast which comes out on Sundays. I try to put them out on Sundays. So you can listen to 5050 9 p.m. Eastern on Thursday nights at U.S. Eastern Time or 0100 UTC Fridays or you can listen to the podcast on Sundays. Just look for Ria's Ham Shack wherever you get your favorite podcast. All right, back to the show. So now it is time for the news. And this week we have a few news in DX that we're going to get from dxworld.net. So um, H40WA from Timutu province, an intrepid DX group. That's my friend Paul Ewing and... And those guys there, they're going to activate H40, the prefix Timutu province. They have all their equipment at Customs in Solomon Islands. And their Customs agent is a local agent. They're going to arrange ferry transportation to Lum Lum, Timutu province. All right. So they're going to ship the gear via ocean cargo. So they have, um, but they have delays that will force to go via air cargo. Very cool. And you can find out more. They have, um, they're coordinating the frequencies with another D expedition, TJ9MD, and TJ9MD is in Cameroon. They're going to have their D expedition. So you're going to have two nice D expeditions on the air to work some DX. And you can work them on single sideband, like I showed you how to do earlier. That's, that's always cool. Now, over in Great Britain, they have the RSGB conference here i'm gonna um talk about it here so the the rsgb the radio society of great britain is holding its um convention on the 13th to 15th of october and they're gonna have a bunch of presentations and they're gonna have the amsat uk colloquium which we held during the convention they have special interest groups and RSGB committees. They have the latest amateur radio equipment and even a great prize. They have a raffle as well, too. There'll be forums on Saturday. Um, they have IQCQ podcasts doing forum there. They also have a focus on outreach and practical activities. So this would be good. If you have, uh, if you're a member of RSGB, they have the Radcom. You can actually look and um, and check out the draft program. It's also available on the RSGB website, rsgb.org forward slash convention. You will have regional representative David De La... Uh, I don't want to pronounce his name. M0MDB will be giving a presentation 
We'll explain more about regional team and how the members can support amateur radio outreach. Uh, they're talking about build-a-thons and they'll have kits as well too. So that that seems like a jolly good time. Um, too bad I couldn't go. I, I, I really you know wish I could have, but oh well. Um, they also have National Coding Week from the 18th of September. But of course the RSGB is going to be dedicating um, the whole of September to focus on coding. So really, really good stuff from there from our friends across the pond. So our next item of news is from the Internet Archive. So the Digital Library of Amateur Radio and Communications is a project of the, inter of the Internet Archive. And it's actually generously funded by a grant from ARDC, Amateur Radio Digital Communications. So it's a project I closely follow. And um, while we were in Japan, there were a lot of uh, interest in this particular project from Japanese radio amateurs. And there has been an uptick of Japanese traffic as a result of our outreach. So kudos to um, the entire crew at ARDC, especially um, John and Chelsea and, of course, myself. But, you know, <laughs> we were at um, J Japan Ham Fair and, uh, and spreading the word. So Internet Bud, this week we're talking about how they've topped 90,000 items. The Internet Archive's Digital Library of Amateur Radio and Communications has grown to more than 90,000 resources related to amateur radio, shortwave listening, amateur television, and related topics. The newest additions to the free online library include ham radio magazines and newsletters from around the world, podcasts, and discussion forums. Additions to the newsletter category include the Capitol Hill Monitor, a newsletter for and by scanner radio enthusiasts in the Washington, D.C. region, a complete run from 1992 through today. DLARC has also added more than 300 issues of Florida Skip and its follow-on magazine, Skip Cyberham, donated by the family of the publisher. Both Capitol Hill Monitor and Florida Skip are online for the first time, scanned from the original paper. DLR has also added newsletters from an additional 35 ham radio clubs in the United States and Canada, including hundreds of issues from the Orange County, California Amateur Radio Club, the Northern California Contest Club, Palo Alto Amateur Radio Association, uh, Academia Lafayette, Louisiana Amateur Radio Association, Mesa Valley Radio Club, and others. New editions of Canadian Club newsletters include 900 issues from the Lakehead Amateur Radio Club in Ontario, the Montreal Amateur Radio Club, and the Halifax Amateur Radio Club. Raleigh, North Carolina Amateur Radio Society contributed more than 700 issues of its Exciter newsletter, which DLR scanned for the first time. Fort Wayne, Indiana Radio Club has contributed newsletters and other materials documenting its 100-year history. The Society of Wireless Pioneers, a program of the California Historical Radio Society, contributed documents going back to its founding in 1968. The Cal Poly Amateur Radio Club donated hundreds of radio manuals, catalogs, and magazines, literally emptying file cabinets of material. DLR has scanned them all and made the trove available online. DLR has expanded its collection of email and Usenet conversations about ham radio from the early days of the internet, with the addition of thousands of messages from the Globugs Digest and early internet discussion list about two based radios. This collection includes posts spanning November 1995 through March 1998. 
DLR has also added more than 750 books and articles written by Donald Lancaster, the American author, inventor, and microcomputer pioneer who died earlier this year and scans hundreds of vintage electronics and radio catalogs. New editions of podcasts and videos include 200 episodes of the defunct Southgate Vibes podcast from the UK, the Ham Radio Guy podcast, and archives of Ham Radio YouTube channels, KM6 LYW Radio, and HB9 BLA Wireless. More than 1,400 historic recordings and contemporary audio clips are available courtesy of the Shortwave Radio Audio Archive. Digital Library of Amateur Radio and Communications is funded by a grant from Amateur Radio Digital Communications, ARDC, to create a free digital library for the radio community, researchers, educators, and students. DLARC invites radio clubs and individuals to submit material in any format. If you have questions about the project or material to contribute, contact K Savets K. 6KJN, who's a program manager of special collections, k at archive.org. That's K-A-Y. They're also on Mastodon, DLARC at Mastodon.radio. Well, this is a really, really worthy project. And, you know, ARDC, um, you know, speaking for myself personally, of course, I'm really proud of of the work ARDC has um, facilitated with the grant to the Internet Archive. And I think it's truly a, a treasure for them to have all of this material relating to amateur radio and you know people will look back in, in maybe in the future when we're all having our flying cars and spaceships yeah we're gonna look back on the history of amateur radio if it's still around i hope it's still around and see things are going on i really should get together all of my episodes of ria's ham shack and um probably uh archive it film that that's pretty cool so as a follow-up to a story we reported on earlier, I think we actually broke this story earlier than a lot of other amateur radio news um, uh, you know, podcasts and such. Um, the Belgians now have access to, officially have access to the 8-meter band. So um, according to this, this is actually, I think they speak Dutch in Belgium. The, the gist I get here that uh, this has been uh, since the 29th of August, uh, 2023, and they have spectrum from 40.660 megahertz to 40.690 megahertz for, uh, they have private radio stations. So I guess it's for private individuals, ham radio operators, individual operating and um, studying. Uh, let's see, technique, bridge wheeling, selling in studies. Uh, I can't pronounce this, but from my, my cursory understanding of German, which is kind of similar to Dutch, I could say that how they have um, technical investigation and studies and radio amateurs. Okay, so they have, um, let's see here, they have five watts. They have modes of A1A, which is AM, F3E, which is FM, J2D, J2B, and J3, which is single sideband, including single sideband data, and uh, really cool. So, hooray for them. You know, I was kind of hoping we'd get down to the U.S., but one of my friends, actually, um, Michelle Bradley, KU3N, she was kind of like, well, yeah, you know, the, it looks like the, the period of, of experimentation in the U.S. is ending. I, we don't know if the FCC is going to give us access to that band. Oh, no. Once again, Americans miss out. How, how tragic is that? Oh, well. Anyway. And, you know... Um, WRMI Legends, one of our sponsors, was Hamtest Online. 
and uh, you know they have um, from various people I've been hearing that how uh, so of course they've been you know they've been going out of business and John W1AI he said that how he was going to retire and shut it down but um, John actually announced in his newsletter that that there are several people who have expressed interest and uh, he thinks he's going to sell it to one of them. So hopefully, hopefully they come back. Hey, you know, guys, if the new people, please continue to advertise on WRMI Legends. You know, um, we have a big 100,000 watt shortwave station and bring you some customers. Okay. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we wish you the best, all the best in your newest endeavors and we hope that we can keep this treasure alive and here's some news out of spain so the there is continuing reception of the ure sat one and uh there's a radio telescope in dwingalu uh, with the in with the call sign pi9 cam and um they have uh some radio amateurs doing uh, reception of telemetry and CW and SSTV from the URESAT-1. So they've received a lot of uh, 60 packets of data from them. And um, they had uh, 40 days in orbit so far. So pretty good stuff. That was on the 8th of August, by the way. And um, so they had a lot of um, stuff there from the URE in uh, Madrid, Spain. So... Pretty cool stuff from our friends in Spain. Shifting to news in India, you know, the Oscar India conference is coming on. And you want to be a part of that at baham.in. Now, the big news. I will be presenting at that conference. However, I'll be doing it virtually because I'm not going to India. It's a little bit of a stretch for me to go to India right now. And... Um, but I will definitely be presenting virtually. And I hope maybe next year I can go. You know, I'm kind of, you know, I've been kind of reconnecting with my Indian roots. Right? Trying to do some genealogy and all that stuff. And, um, yeah, so it's going to be at the 23rd and 24th September 2023. It's going to be Srijani Silpagram Open Auditorium at Santini Ketan, West Bengal. Okay? So it's going to be held by Oscar India. You can find a uh the information about the conference at oc.baham.in in india really cool and they have the program i'll be uh, a program i'll be doing a program about a topic there and um so really good stuff i really wish i could have gone there but of course i have things that to do here so i can't but I'm very happy that they're doing this. I'm really, um, I'm really glad for them. They're they're an up and coming organization in India, and they're doing a lot of great things. So look out for them, you know. And they have um, uh, young people doing stuff for them, including their superstar Aishi VU3OOS, and she just got her call sign. And she's a young lady who has been doing great strides in amateur radio. I think she's like. 16 years old now that's pretty cool you know especially in a country like india where you face a lot of bureaucratic hurdles hurdles especially for young girls and women it's really um really proud and impressive of them 
Okay, so next and our last segment, of course, is the usual Q&A. I know I did a little bit of Q&A from the, the main topic. I know we're changing up the, um, the, the format of the show, so we're going to have a main learning topic because, you know, because our friends in Newington have said, well, you know, they want to be the only ones doing learning, or at least we're told so. Um, I don't, I want everybody to be doing learning. Okay. So, uh, Tim here asks, what famous person do you have a QSL card from? Um, very interesting. Uh, some people got cards from like Joe Walsh and, and such like that. Well, um, I got a card from Joe Taylor, K1JT, who was a famous Nobel laureate. And he made the famous FT8 mode, of course. But I have cards from other people. I have a card from uh, the station in um, the Last Man Standing, right? Which was, um, of course, K0XTT. Now that is a fictitious call sign because that the X actually stands for experimental. So you'll find that that call sign is never going to be used on the air in the amateur radio service. I actually went there to operate in 2018. Uh, John Amadeo, who was the executive producer, then he actually invited me on to operate so pretty cool yeah um that's one of them who i had a famous radio amateur from uh gosh i really wish i had gotten one from king hussein of jordan but i wasn't licensed then and then he pretty much sadly passed away later on but people who got qsl cards from him i got like a nice um a gold leafed qsl card and it was quite magnificent because I'll give you a story. There, he was drag chewing with somebody on, I think it was twenty meters or something, and then somebody came up and and he and he and the person said, "So what do you do there in in, um, in uh, Jordan there, Hussein?" So he said, "My name is Hussein. I'm from Amman, Jordan." And the person said, "What do you do there in 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 Jordan there, Hussein?" And then somebody squeezed their mic and blurted out. He's the king, you moron. <laughs> I'm sure everybody laughed. Those who might have had their vox on, probably you heard the laugh over the air. So yeah, he's the king, and he's a good guy. Other than that, you know, um, I've had QSL cards from Famous Hams. I've had a bunch from Marty Lane. I've had from John Devil Dare, ON4UN, and others. And uh, celebrities? Mm, I don't know, but... I have to check through my pile of QSL cards, but you know, the best QSL cards are from memorable contacts and uh, celebrities are one thing, but you know, my memorable friends are another. So this next one we've covered <laughs> a few times, but you know, what ham radio logbook you guys like? Well, I like Beerus, I like log for om I like um, Rumlog, which Rumlog NG, which is on Macintosh and I like N1MM and Skookum Log, which is Macintosh, we're contesting, so really cool stuff. Um, by the way, Hamsai uh, is, has the Solar Eclipse QSO parties coming up, so if you ever wondered about uh, Hamsai, Nathaniel Frizzell, W2NAF, does a fantastic program at University of Scranton. He used to be from NJIT, believe it or not. He's a Jersey guy, and he was introduced to ham radio by one of my friends, Greg N2BSA. He was a scout. And um, Greg actually was a, he was, he was, Greg used to organize Jamboree on the air events. So uh, Nathaniel learned about that from scouting. And then he got into a full career 
um, not necessarily with amateur radio, but he actually got into a career with solar science. And believe it or not, solar science is important not only for amateur radio, but other things such as drones, such as military, such as commercial applications. I know everybody is jumping on that HF bandwagon. Nathaniel did a, a really good series of presentations at Dayton Hamvention. He did one at the Flex Radio Forum. He did one at various other activities in Contest University too. But he was um, he showed a, a a number of different ways they measure propagation. He needs your help, particularly if you live near the equator, such as in uh, in Trinidad <laughs> or other places. You need to get on the air during the Solar Eclipse QSO party. So that is going to be on October 14th, 2023 and April 8th, 2024. That's when we're going to have the two big solar eclipses. And we need the help to get people on the air because they need to measure activities from people who get on the air and such. So uh, really good stuff. Um, so if you're near the equator, I know we have a global audience and we want to definitely amp it up for them. You know, Nathaniel's doing great work. You can check him out at hamsci.org, H-A-M-S-C-I.org. My friend Bob McGuire, N4HY, is actually um, doing stuff with them. You know, so the Ham Radio Science Citizen Investigation and they have the Festivals of Eclipse and Ionospheric Science. They use They use things like Doppler Shift to measure ionospheric propagation. Really cool stuff. Yeah, so it, like I said, if you're inclined, if you're near the equator, you know, I would like to, um, I would like to invite you to do that. And this weekend, you know, I got to plug my state of New Jersey. So this weekend we have the New Jersey QSO party. Uh, we have a number of QSO parties going on this weekend, believe it or not. So uh, the the New Jersey QSO uh, party is sponsored by the Burlington uh, County Radio Club K2TD. Contact as many New Jersey amateurs in as many New Jersey counties as possible. New Jersey stations contact as many amateurs in the United States and other states um, uh, outside of New Jersey, of course. Uh, New Jersey con New Jersey stations give their county, in my case it's Sus County, Sussex County, and um, the other stations give their state. So it's September 16th, 12 noon to 23.59 EDT, 80, 40, 20, 50, and 10 meters only. They have suggested frequencies. You can go to k2td-bcrc.org forward slash NJQP. So they have single operator, multi-operator, rover, rookie, remote station. And they have the modes and they have club aggregate scores, all sorts of stuff. They give you a, a, a small plaque. Um, my friend Jay Rodman had one. It was really cool. Anyway, that's going to wrap it up for us this week here on Ria's Ham Shack on the WRMI Legends. Heard every... Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central on 5050 kilohertz. And with replays at 1 p.m. Central, 2 p.m. Eastern on Fridays at WRMILegends.com. And of course, available wherever you get podcasts. Look for Ria's Hamshack. My friends, peace and 73. 
And whatever you do, have fun with the New Jersey QSO party this weekend. Take care. <laughs>